Welcome to It Means What It Means, a podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Before I introduce today's guests, I'm going to take a moment to walk through what I see as my vision for the next three years of this podcast. So for the remainder of this year, episodes will be released quarterly. This will satisfy the requirement for quarter two. After this year, I'll go to bi-monthly episodes in 2024, meaning a total of six episodes will be planned for that year. And then in 2025, probably settle down for a while with monthly episodes. So I have the remainder of the year planned out, but I won't discuss what those interviews are because they haven't actually been recorded yet. When they are recorded, I try to edit them as quickly as possible because of the day job part of the tagline for this podcast. And once I get them edited, I will put them out. But they'll be out on Patreon. And the, the idea there is if I release them for free on a certain schedule, the sooner I get them edited, I can release them out and people can get them if they subscribe for $5 a month. But because I like to do things at a predictable pace for myself, they won't be released on free apps or to the public generally to be listened to for free until they're scheduled. So that $5 a month will get you access as soon as they are edited, which is typically within a week to 10 days of my sitting down and recording them. On to today's guest. Today's guest Someone I follow on Twitter, Rabbi Michael Harvey. He's the author of Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians. You can find that on his website, rabbimichaelharvey.com, or just about anywhere else that you think to think of to buy books. You can also find it in pretty much every format that you would want to buy a book in. But the subject of our conversation today will be a Twitter thread from March 3rd of 2023. The subject of that thread was Genesis 1, specifically its authorship and the significance of who authored it. Just to provide a little bit of background on something that we're discussing in this episode, there's a thing called documentary hypothesis, which posits that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, was really a compilation of different points of view represented by the Yahwist Eloist, Deuteronomic, and priestly communities. This comes into play a fair bit in our conversation in this episode. So I just wanted people to be aware of that. Just go ahead and Google Documentary Hypothesis if you have any questions on that. There are plenty of books out there on it. I know that in the future I'm going to want to have someone on to discuss in more detail than we do in this episode. But this was kind of a good introduction to at least one of those communities. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rabbi Michael E. Harvey. Rabbi Mike Harvey, welcome. Before we get started, can you just, is there anything that's not out there that you want people to know about you? I'll put a little biographical information in before this, but tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, most of my stuff can be found on my website, www.rabbimichaelharvey.com. It lists all the teaching events that I'm doing, my bio, 
my other ways, whether it's on video or podcasts or whatever it is. So all of that can be found there. So go there. It's your one-stop shop. Good stuff. So the subject of our conversation today is a March 3rd, 2023 Twitter thread on Genesis 1. I don't want to prolong the description. I'll have that out there. I'll make sure that's included in everything that I put out for this episode of the podcast. So right off the bat, in your Twitter thread, you say, the question we need to ask is, who wrote this? So if you could really quickly, or take as long as you want, actually, tell us who wrote this and what we know about. So according to the most recent scholarship, which I follow and I think suggests strongly, is that the writers of Genesis 1 are what we would call the priestly writers or from the priestly school, shortened to be the P writer from the documentary Hypothesis. And this is a group of writers or a school of thought, someone who is understanding of these things, who views themselves as descendants of Levite priests, Levite priests. These were the, the authors of Proto-Leviticus, the priestly manual, which eventually became the book of Leviticus. And this is a writer that pops up from time to time, certainly the full, the full book of Leviticus, but Richard Friedman does a great job of pointing out in his book, Who Wrote the Bible, and the Bible with sources, where he color codes it all, of where the priestly writer pops in as an editor or a redactor. And so it's a strong voice. It's a voice that deals very much with holiness and separateness, strong theological ideas, strong push for their own authority. And Genesis 1 reads very, very much like a priestly author. So holiness, separateness, priestly author, how, how do those things mesh together? Well, let me pull up this, this thread so I've got it in front of me so that I can make sure that I'm not speaking with a lot of pauses and sort of thinking about things. I can, uh, I can do this for you. Let's see here. Genesis 1. So, basically, the idea in Judaism, certainly from a priestly point of view, is that the word for holiness, kadosh, also means separate. And so keeping things apart, keeping things in an order, right, where they are not supposed to be, but in a place where they can be organized and put in. So the priestly writers like binaries. They like things that are opposites, things that seem very easily categorized. And so we see this not only in Genesis 1 with all of the uh, binary elements of creation, day and night, sun and moon, waters above, waters below, man and woman, those sorts of things. But we also see that in their laws, their purity laws, you know, whether it comes to, you know, not wearing two different kind of fabrics not mixing those sorts of things to their views on sexuality. But, you know, that's that's how they like to view things in terms of you keep things in an order. And it is that order, certainly through speech, as God created the world through speech, that that keeps our world together. And that's the priestly idea is that that is their job to maintain that order so that chaos does not creep into our world. So is that something that distinguishes them from the, the the Yahweh community or the Yahweh portions of the text or or any of the other portions of the text or these things that blend between these, I'm guessing, communities? 
right? Well, the Yahwist authors, the Eloist authors, and the Deuteronomic schools all had very different ideas, very different views of God, very different views of who the Israelite people were. But certainly the idea of holiness and sort of separateness, that was, that was a priestly function. You don't see it so much from the other authors because they're not so focused on purity and things like that. You know, the, the priest's ideas of maintaining pure maintaining separate, right? Not being near dead bodies for women being separate during their menstrual cycle. You know, when someone gets sick, taking them out of the camp, keeping things away from one another. That's a very priestly idea of separating yourself from the community when something's not right and also keeping an order in that way. And, and the priests themselves were very separate, right? I mean, if we're thinking about the priestly role or at least their thought of their role, during the, the Great Temple period, they were the only ones who go into the Holy of Holies. They were the only ones who eat parts of the sacrifice. They were the only ones that are, um, you know, they're separate in class, the Kohanes and the Levites, you know, from the Israelites. So separateness and holiness, that gave them their authority, gave them their own holiness in their way. And so it sort of built their own authority on what they were, on what they were doing. So I think, yeah, I think there's there's some connections there, but I wouldn't say... It's not completely devoid you know, within the Yahwist or Eloist writers, certainly not the Deuteronomic school, Deut Deuteronomy also. That school of thought has some binary ideas as well, good and evil, all that sort of stuff comes from Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomic school. But, you know, I think that overall it is a, it is a priestly source. Yeah. So listening to that, the, the, the one thing that I highlighted that I wanted to make sure I brought up because I thought this was like... This one stands out because this is not what I learned about law. And it's in the Rabbi Dr. I. Epstein quote, at the very end, yes. the law has nothing totemic about it. It is expressly associated in uh -huh. scripture with the idea of holiness. I think that's right. interesting. And then I, I don't want to rehash the whole quote, but the, the Mary Douglas quote, it almost sure. does sound deuteronomic in nature. So I could definitely see there being some mutual thinking there of like, if you do these things, good things can come. If you don't, good things may not come. And that's certainly a refrain in Deuteronomy. So these communities are obviously not yeah. at odds with each other on everything. Like you're saying, there's some cooperation. No, there. certainly not. And not only cooperation, you know, aware of one another, you know, and aware of these things that they're there. I mean, the Deuteronomic writer who you know, pops in from time to time, but also wrote the book of Deuteronomy, wrote that book, that school of thought wrote that book to stand alone, not to be along with the other canons. I mean, it's a rehashing of all the other four, you know, at least the relevant aspects to them through Moses's speech. So of course, they're aware of these things, aware of these thoughts, and took them on their own way to say these already exist. So we're going to make them in a way that, you know, makes sense to us and the point that we want to make, which is good and evil and if you're good, good things happen. If you're evil, bad things happen, which is, it's a very Deuteronomic idea, but not necessarily what the priests, where the priests were going with it. They didn't see it so individualized as if you do good, you know, you know, good and evil and good and wickedness. It's all about for them, the holiness that we keep and the laws that we keep are simply for community-wide for the world to make sure that the world stays together, that, that chaos doesn't invade it. Deuteronom Deuteronomy is a much more individualistic idea of, you know, accountability. If you're good, then it rains. If you're bad, then it's drought, you know, and then this, that idea traveled all the way up to the 
through the rabbinic period and still today, right, that if something happens, somehow it's your fault, right? That's the whole idea of lamentations, right? Is that there's no way that, you know, something bad happened to us unless it was our fault. Very Deuteronomic. And and what what causes that influence to, to go from a more communal understanding of this kind of thing to a more individualistic? You know, that's hard to say, but it's just a, it's a different sort of focus of the school of thought, right? The priests wanted their authority to be worldwide in terms of, and community-wide. The Deuteronomic writer speaks from Moses to, to the individual Israelite, right? To, you know, from the rich to the poor, whatever it is, you're all held to the same standard. And, you know, they, he says, choose life, you know, meaning choose, choose the way of righteousness, and then you will, you'll benefit and all that sort of stuff instead of being punished and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, it's a different, it's a different attempt from a school of thought to maintain its own authority, right? And the authority of the law, the priest's authority of the law comes from themselves. Their job is to make sure that the universe doesn't collapse on you. So they have that authority, the Deuteronomic idea, the authority of the law, right? And Moses as the lawgiver, as the prophet king is if you follow these things, or rather, if you don't follow these things, you'll be cursed, you know? And so that puts the law in its own authoritative, authoritative idea. So they're just two different ideas of how to build authority with commandments in that way. So the, the priestly authors are ultimately worried about if we as a people, they're saying, if we as a people don't understand the world this way and conduct ourselves accordingly, we're in danger of experiencing chaos. Is that? Yes. And it's the priest's job to maintain that for us, which is why while priests were not allowed to own land, right, they do get money and donations and power and authority and all that sort of stuff because they're the ones in charge. They're the ones who do that for us, mean that purity for us, you know, supervise the the sacrifices and make sure that everyone's separate, right? They're the, they were the doctors, right? The priests were the doctors. So if you come to someone who's sick, you don't go to the doctor in the Torah, you go to the priest, right? They're that authority. And it's their job to maintain that that order, from that point of view. So yes, and they they believed, or at least they wrote, whether they believed it or not, they wrote that if they were not in this place to do these things and these laws were not in place that they were keeping, then yes, the order that God had created through speech of binaries would collapse into itself. And so it's our job to, you know, provide sacrifices, to provide, you know, follow these laws of of order, just like creation, to continue that laws of creation, to maintain the, the order that God created from, from Genesis, from, from the beginning of the world through their view. So if we take that to be a positive assertion that's happening here, how much can, can we look at this text and say, there's maybe adjacent cultures, narratives, myths that are around them that they're subverting or co-opting and retelling a story. Is that, do we see any of that here? I mean, I would say that's more Genesis two and three. That's Enuma Elish and other Near Eastern legends. This is relatively unique. I don't like qualifying the word unique, but it is relatively unique. You know, a, a God who creates through speech is unique. A, you know, the, a, an organization of this kind with very little, you know, reaching in and, you know, pulling, you know, hands on sort of thing is unique. And just so, so that, you know, there is an alternative to that, right. In Psalm 74, Psalm 74 is 
a very violent, hands-on creation story where God gets in there and gets his hands dirty. And so that was a different sort of take on on it. But Genesis 1 is a very specific view of a distant, you know, the ideas of speech, the ideas of binary, the ideas of order out of chaos. And so this is this is very different from what we would see from Dick or, or Egyptian or, or other Near Eastern myths of the pantheon or, or God's reason for creating the world, the reasons for creating life, right? If you read Enuma Elish and other other things like Gilgamesh and things like that, you know, it's always gods who are bored and lazy and they want humans to serve them, basically. That's not what this is about. This is about a creation of order. And so it's, I don't, I don't know of other Near Eastern legends or creation epics that can echo this. And that's why it stands out in that way. And it, I mean, it, it stands to reason that even if there were the fact that they're not like easily coming to your mind, that they're, they're not that common, right. even, even if they're out there, they're not that common. So yeah, I think the relatively that's unique true. thing, that's, um, not that I've heard of everything, you know, I've, I'm hardly, hardly, um, you know, I've, uh, have an exhaustible list, but I tried to I try to keep up to date on Hebrew University and scholarship things like that. I have yet to find something like this that echoes another another myth as as easily as the, the Genesis two, the flood epic, you know, some of the other you know Babel and other sort of Genesis stories, which very clearly you know mimic other other sort of legends. This one is this one stands alone as terms of a, a unique a unique entrance of God, of a God into the world. I mean, that, that almost makes it seem like to me in the development of the text that we know as Genesis, it's a pretty bold move for, for this group of guys to come in. And as you said, like they're in charge to come in and just slap their story on the front, because there are things that, I mean, it sounds like you're saying they're older. They come from a a different form of praxis and a different understanding of who Israel is maybe, you know, predating the temple possibly. Yeah, but I think also, you know, we shouldn't get caught up with the order of the text. It's possible that the priests had, the priestly writers had no choice in the matter as to where this would go in the canon, right? Genesis 2 and 3 might have existed, but, you know, for a while, and then some redactor or editor decided to put this in the front. Uh, Whether the priests had that authority or who the redactor was, who the editor was, those are fun things to imagine, but we just don't know how the canon was put together. So, but it is a, it is a fascinating move, one, to put Genesis 1 next to Genesis 2 and 3, you know, when they're conflicting creation stories, putting them together and then trying to sew them together, which, you know, rabbis have been trying to do for two, you know, for, I don't know, 3,000 years, 4,000 years. But, you know, it's, it's difficult because they are very separate stories, very different stories. So how it ended up at the very beginning, somebody had some influence and said, this is how we're going to start Genesis. Whether they knew that the rest of the Torah was going to follow or what the proto-Torah looked like, who knows, but this is what this book, before it goes into all these other <laughs> you know, myths and then goes into family and ancestry and tribalish and things like that, this is what they wanted to do. It really does stand out and almost doesn't belong frankly, when you look at some of the other themes within Genesis, this is a, this is a strange sort of insert so far away from Leviticus or proto-Leviticus, perhaps that Genesis wasn't always so far away, but, but in, you know, for, through whatever reasons we don't know, it ended up here at the front of the book and it's the first words we read. So. 
good for them. So, so you mentioned <laughs> that rabbis have been trying to make them work together. How, how have sure. they, what are some of the ways that they've done that? That that's a really interesting thing oh, to me. Sure. I mean, if you are looking at from the rabbinic point of view, right, the rabbinic point of view, which is a late point of view, is the idea that the Torah comes from Sinai, written by God, God's self, is perfect in its creation. And if we have problems with it, that's our problem, right? We have to figure it out. We have to discover the secrets, right? And so if that's your point of view, you have to wrestle with certain things, such as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3, existing next to each other, right? And with Genesis 1, with the creation of man and woman at once, and then the Genesis 2 and 3 epic of, you know, the woman being created later. Plenty of rabbinic commentary on that, that they say, no, this is what this meant, or, you know, that's not, you know, or this was allegory, or this meant this, or whatever it is. But you know, I've been in this sort of business long enough for me that I sort of scoff at that stuff. I mean, they try their best. But anyone who attempts to try to merge Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and 3 is coming from a completely theological, rabbinic, you know, agenda to sort of mesh these things together. And sometimes it's not so pretty. They don't do a great job. But if that's all you learn, right, then of course it makes sense. Right. It's only when you take off those glasses of the the rabbis who answer the questions before you can ask them that you get into those these these problems where you have it stand out like this. So so if not, I guess, blending them or forcing them to get along, what do you as a rabbi like? How do you approach that then? Oh, well, I mean, I like to take things from from an academic point of view, a scholarly point of view, right? I don't like to narrow my focus or purposely ignore things, you know, and I don't believe that my faith or theology has anything to do with that, right? There are those that will tell you that if you do not believe that the Torah is, you know, divinely written or comes from Sinai, then, then everything is an intellectual exercise. I completely disagree. And so from a rabbinic point of view, I want my students to, I mean, a rabbi, I'm a teacher first, right? I want my students to learn what I learn and find trouble where I find trouble and find challenges and ask questions. I'm not interested in giving answers. I'm interested in making sure that people are inspired with those aha moments of, um, well, what does this mean? What is that, you know, everything leads to more questions. That's to me what being a rabbi is about. It's always been about that. Certain things have answers, but mostly they're suggestions, right? All this scholarship is just well-researched you know, theses and uh, hypotheses. And I think they make more sense to me than just, and I frankly, I think that they're more interesting than just saying, you know, if you don't get it, it's your problem. So it's like a, it's like a puzzle you'll never, never solve. We get close, right? I mean, and that's the cool part, right? Is when you find a piece and you think it fits and suddenly it leads to a whole, like, that's the cool part. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather be working on a puzzle than Someone show me the box and I just believe that that's what it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, like, absolutely. So, okay. Kind of going back. So the, yep. the, the P source is telling us, here's how creation happened. It exists in this way and you have to exist within that context. You in the plural have to right. exist within that context because if you don't, that way is danger. That way is peril. Right. Then you bring in you in your thread, 
you you bring in sacrifice, and this is the part. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do a tryhard metaphor metaphor that you may you may hear and say I really don't care about that. So having having come <laughs> from an evangelical Christian background, my entire life we scoffed oh. at transubstantiation, and this is the part where you're like I don't care. So transubstantiation, oh look how silly it is. Okay, and then you get a little bit older and you learn about the Reformation and you find out Martin Luther tried to like split the difference and he said consubstantiation, which we thought was almost as stupid, but not quite. And then the answer that I heard growing up as a Baptist is like, it's just a symbol. And the older I got, the more of a problem I had with that. And I found out in my early 20s, there was a dude in the 16th century named Johannes Echolampadius who was taking the Greek text and saying... This is what it would look like in Aramaic. And he took that word is out of the statement, this is my body. And he said, just, just, there's a dash and we don't know what goes there. And that to me kind of filled what I would call like a practical mysticism. It's way more interesting than any kind of woo woo nonsense that people would come up with. And what I feel like you were on the verge and it's a Twitter thread. I understand you're not fleshing out the whole thing when you talk about right. sacrifice was something akin to a practical mysticism that is really exciting to me and is actually the thing that I was most eager to talk to you about. <laughs> so, can, oh, and you can cool. talk for as long as you want. I'm going to mute my mic. Explain <laughs> how the sacrifices maintain the margins as granularly as you want. Sure. Yeah, sure. You know, I'll say that the P author has its own understanding of sacrifice. There's all kinds of reasons throughout the Torah and throughout the Tanakh of the reason for sacrifice. You know, some some sources within the, the Bible talk about the pleasing odor, that for some reason God would, would like the pleasing odor. Some talk about that it's actually God eating the sacrifice when the fire comes down, right? And some of those monotheistic ideas. Of, and, and then you have something later, which is my favorite, which is Psalm 50, where an author said, looks at this, and there's this great line in Psalm 50, and he says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you, right? There's this, this power of, of this monotheistic idea of this God who, who said, he says, you know, I created the world. If, I, if I'm hungry, I, I, don't, I don't ask you for food. You know, sacrifice is about, it's about Thanksgiving. It's about Thanksgiving offering, right, of being grateful for things. And that, that to me is my favorite sort of polemic within the Bible against other things within the Bible. There's lots of, lots of those. Um, from the priestly point of view, however, the sacrifice does a few things within the margins that the priests believe that maintain the order. There is a gap in that connection between God and humans and the way through that gap is through sacrifice. So that is a communication through the margins, through the borders, according to the priests. And there are these rituals associated with the blood and what kind of thing you kill and who eats what and who goes into the Holy of Holies and all these sort of things. It's this very private and organized ritual because this is a communication, right? Through that, that margin, through that border to get to God. 
and for God to to reassure you that you're doing things correctly, right? That uh, whether it's a Thanksgiving offering, whether it's, you know, sending up a smoke signal of some kind, but it's communication between the high priests and this God, this, this being who allows order to exist for us, right? And, you know, grades us on our our own attempts to to maintain order. So sacrifice to them is this highly ritualistic communication and sort of validation back and forth, very different from some of the other biblical ideas of sacrifice. And again, this God that they believed, again, it's a very different view of God than some of the other authors. And, and I'm sure there was a great deal of fear from the priests and a great deal of awe from the Israelites in terms of this is how you break into the divine. This method is how you reach the divine. And so you need a very particular group of people to do it and very real, and it has to be done right, right? I mean, we read about in, in, in the Torah when things aren't done right, right? There's unholy fire and all these other things. Like it has to be done the right way. And, and so you need highly trained, highly specialized doctor priests to do this who cannot touch you and cannot be near you and only get, you know, it's a very, it's a specialized, you know, a specialization sort of thing. And again, speaks to their authority and their, you know, their, their ability to, to rise over the, the, the standard Israelite. So in, in that way, this is what this class of people, this kind of professional class of priests is is communicating like this is how you penetrate the membrane between us and God. Were there other under right. understanding? I mean, I'm sure there were, but but what did that look like from the Deuteronomic community, from the Yahweh Yahwehistic community? Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, like I said, there. You know, if you're looking through sort of the Yahwist point of view or the the Eloist point of view, the pantheon and the and the divine council of gods and things like that, sacrifices. You know the old ideas of sacrifice in near near Eastern. You know they they did like the smell, or they actually eat it, right? You're actually giving a, a divine being that's not so far away from you, right? Food and recognizing your own human ability, or you know humanity rather, and and how big they are, right? There's there's a a passage that speaks about a being called Azazel, right, where you put all your sins into a goat and you send it off in the wilderness as a sacrifice, right? All your sins go there. And that's the sin God that takes care of it or whatever it is, right? Everything has its sort of place, right? That's a, that's very old style Near, near Eastern ideas of sacrifice, which far predates Israelite and Yahwist religion. Um, but then later, you know, you, it gets a little bit more complicated as people start to decentralize and, you know, vices aren't made with the priests, right? Or can't be made with the priests, right? Or the st- destruction of the temple, right? Sacrifices take on different meanings, different reasons. That's why Psalm 50, as I said, was written, right? It, it's not about feeding them. It's about gratefulness, thanksgiving, right? To a, showing gratefulness to a God, right? And the Deuteronomic idea would be, you know, that's something to be righteous, right? To show your righteousness, to show you're following the lead. You're choosing this God, right? You're you're choosing this monotheistic idea. You're not sacrificing to other gods. You're not being idolatrous or adulterous, right? You're only feeding that one, or you're only sacrificing to that God. So there's all kinds of stuff all over the Torah and all over the Bible, reasons for sacrifice. The priestly idea is unique in that way because their God's much farther away. And it's not a god that is sizable from Near Eastern legends of the Pantheon and, and those sorts of things, right? It's it's just that thin membrane of order 
and that's it. So, you know, those are all the examples I can come up without, you know, cracking my notes, but, but there's a lot, a lot out there. And, and how do those translate into diaspora Judaism of like the second temple period or even into rabbinic Judaism when there is no temple eventually, how do these things like, how, how do people understand what this means for them now? Right. Right. So after the temple is destroyed, you know, the second temple period or before the second temple period, and of course, when the great temple is destroyed, the second temple is destroyed, right? There's rabbinic works that address this directly because the centralized cultic idea of Judaism with the priestly idea and things like that, it's completely washed away. So two things happen. One, sacrifice is no longer possible or because we don't have the necessary means to do it anymore. And two, the entire theology of God changes because there's no possible way that at least through an Israelite religion, at least the leaders of the Israelite religion would allow the idea that a Babylonian God would be able to destroy the Israelite house unless that God wanted it to happen. And so it was on us, right? And so that's where you get lamentations, all that sort of stuff. So, but in terms of sacrifice, right, that whole system goes away. And so Judaism as a whole needs to be sort of reinvented in the second temple period. And then again, in the first century. And so the, the rabbinic idea of it, there are Talmudic passages that directly respond to it and saying, what are we going to do? There's no temple. We can't sacrifice. How are we supposed to do that? And the rabbis respond with justice and loving kindness, acts of loving kindness, right? They follow the Psalm 50 idea of thanksgiving and gratefulness. And how do you show gratefulness to God? You follow the mitzvot and you perform acts of loving kindness. And in that way, you begin to identify and model against with the deity, right? To emulate. And there's lots of precedent for that as well, right? One of the one of the many suggestions for the for the Sabbath for Shabbat is to emulate the deity. But but this is an idea of a loving kindness. God, you how do you get close to God? How do you, you know, give thanks to God? How do you show love for God from, from, from a Jewish point of view? From, from the rabbinic point of view, God shows showed love by giving us the Torah. We show love by following the mitzvot, acting morally, providing loving kindness, and, and seeking out justice. That's that love relationship. Very, very different from other first century ideas such as you know Christianity and, and Gnosticism and things like that, but and the paganism ideas. But this was these were the things that adapted in that way. So when sacrifice ended, Judaism became a pursuit of justice and loving kindness in that same way to represent things that represented sacrifice, a connection to the And day. so still not a totemic thing, no. which is which is really yeah. interesting because it very well could have just been, here's a relic from our past. We revere right. it, but there's no. this whole new identity that comes into existence of complete complete refashioning of Judaism. And, you know, I, I don't know of another religion that's done it, right, as drastically as that did. But when the house of God fell, something needed to be either it was going to die or change, right? And so it changed. And so modern Judaism is now rabbinic Judaism. It's not biblical Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is based on biblical Judaism, of course. Rabbinic Judaism would not exist without biblical Judaism. But there are no biblical Jews, <laughs> you know. Now it's all rabbinic, all from you know, progressive to ultra-Orthodox, they follow the rabbinic understanding now of the reformulation of Judaism. That's, that, 
That's really fascinating looking in from the outside. That's a really fascinating component Mm -hmm. of how Judaism developed into what it has become. I know we don't have a ton of time left, and I want you to be able to answer this as much or as little as you want. So what is going on in biblical studies, in your opinion, that you would point people to? Like, where would you have them go to read or to listen or whatever? So... You know, if we think about if we think about religious studies and biblical studies as Jenga towers, right? I love the the metaphor of the Jenga tower. Before, right, if you're looking from a theological point of view, everything that that exists from a theological point of view in in Judaism or even in Christianity, really, really exists on the assumptions, right? Of the law comes from Sinai, it's perfect, all that sort of stuff, and then you've got the Mishnah and the Talmud and then the law codes and all this sort of stuff. And it's built in that way. So what biblical studies and archaeology and literary scholarship and Hebrew analysis, things like that, is pull out those bottom pieces, right? And the assumptions that were made by, or theolog- not, not assumptions, I guess we call them assumptions now, but the theological declarations that the rabbis or the, or the commentators made were based on different interpretations of the entire book, the entire meaning, right? Excuse me. Once we have a new meaning or a new understanding of something, we pull out that thing and the whole thing starts to wobble. Some people lash out at that. They're afraid of it. They get angry, right? I encounter, we encounter that a lot. For me, I think it's fascinating. I think it's amazing to see that tower wobble, right? And say, you know, if you take something as minute as kashrut law, right? As kosher law. It's way there at the top. There's law codes about it. There's kosher butchering. There's stamps that go on, you know, there's modern day, how to, how to keep kashrut. If you go all the way down from the law codes, the rabbinic ideas to the biblical passages themselves, the biblical passages are interpreted a certain way to build that tower. Biblical scholarship is going to tell you, no, that's not why <laughs> that's in there. And that's not what that means. And that's not why that was. You pull that out and all of Kashrut falls over, right? That doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep Kashrut. There's meaning to meaningful aspects to it. There's ritual, there's tradition, there's beauty to it. There's health reasons. There's all kinds of wonderful reasons to keep Kashrut. But from a biblical scholarship point of view, there's a we have to separate ourselves from the theological Judaism to our work. Right. And I'll put it this way. I used to teach this stuff in congregations. And so imagine me teaching you or teaching a a group of, you know, modern day reformed Jews that the idea of monotheism was not always so. And that when we read the the song of the sea, who is like you among the gods, Yahweh, it's not a metaphor of the gods. It's not a, you know, it's actually speaking of the existence of other gods. And then they have to go to services Friday night or Saturday morning and sing. You know, they have to sing it. Um, and, you know, the, the answer is how do you transition from studying the text to living the text and, and going and, and loving it and singing it and following tradition and understanding the, the meaning of it, right? It's hard. It's hard work. But that's what biblical studies, at least in Judaism, is doing, right? Is challenging people to be able to think in two different ways. One's the way you go to shul or synagogue and living a Jewish life. And the other is covering new things that make us question 
that tower that, that has been built on assumptions that we know to be different or suggest to be different, or thanks to archaeology, strongly suggests we're incorrect, right? And what do we do with that now? How do we respond to that now? You know, I wrote a, a thread about how there's no archaeological evidence that we were ever in Egypt, right? What do you do with that at Passover time? Well, the, pa the Pesach ritual is a home ritual, and there's all kinds of meanings for it. <laughs> Whether we were there or not doesn't matter anymore, right? Those who cling to that idea, well, it's meaningless. If we're not, well, that's the same people who say that, you know, if the Torah isn't divine, then it's just an intellectual exercise. Again, I disagree with that. I'll celebrate Passover with you, even though I've studied archaeological evidence and biblical scholarship for us to know, for me to know, at least strike confidently, that Jews were not slaves in Egypt for 400 years, that it was a mean, an allegory for something else. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to make the Seder plate and sing the songs and, all, and, and enjoy family and enjoy tradition. That's the struggle that modern Jews, and frankly, I wish more modern Christians would be able to do, is be able to be okay with those rituals and traditions while understanding that the origins are not quite there. And, you know, I, um, I call it sitting at the adults' table, right? If you go to Sunday school, you're taught puppies and rainbows of this is true and this is what happens. You have to grow up eventually and realize that that's not necessarily true, but here's why we do it now. And here's why it's meaningful. That's the adult table. That's what the adults are talking about. While you're talking about whether Noah really put two pairs of things on the ark, the adult table is talking about how it said two pairs and then it said seven and it said 150 days and it said 40 days. And the, you know, what does that mean? That's what's happening at the adult table. And that's what we need to be able to do is to be able to sit as adults and let go of that Sunday school idea, right? There was a, the last comment I'll make on this is there was a speaker who went to the, came to the Chautauqua Institution. I don't remember his name, but he was such a wonderful speaker. And he said, the problem with being born again is that you never grow up. And so if you keep getting born again, you know, and, and ensconced in the Sunday school sort of, this is how it is, then you never reach the adults table. And you never get to experience the mature idea of, holy moly, what does this mean to me? And what do we do? And your world doesn't collapse if the tower, tower falls. You just build a new one and you keep the pieces that you like. And that's okay. That's what adults do. So that's the world of biblical scholarship right now. And it's fighting against fundamentalism, Christian nationalism, evangelicalism that is pushing the Sunday school narrative and saying, if you don't believe this, you're not you're, you know, you're wrong. And that's it. That's to me, that's, it's not an adult conversation. So biblical, biblical scholarship right now is trying to get people into an adult conversation. Is, is there sense. something specifically in the realm of biblical scholarship that you would point people to, Hey, go here, check this person out, check this book out, podcast even. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I have the, <laughs> I have the advantage of having studied this for most of my adult life. And so, you know, my knowledge comes from books and books and books and articles and classes and, you know, and so as a, you know, as a literati, I suppose, in that sense, I am, I'm at an advantage where I have all this stuff and I just sort of, it's part of my life. A regular layperson doesn't sit through five years of seminary and four years of PhD work. It's not their everyday life, right? So there are books that I would recommend 
to get you started. And, and those lead to other books and other questions. And there are authors that I would suggest. And, and then there's internet sites that I would not suggest, you know, and there's podcasts that I might suggest. And there's ones that I would not suggest. But if you are truly interested in starting a journey towards looking at things differently, that's the reason why I wrote my book. It's a short 200 page book for lay people to just start thinking about things differently. And if you like it, in the back are all those references, right? All the sources that I all got it from. And so what I tell people is get my book, read through it. If you like it, look in the reference in the index and you'll see big names in biblical scholarship and Jewish Christian relations and Christian history and second temple period and check the references. If you're interested in one thing, go towards those authors, go towards those books and follow down that road. But it's such a sea of knowledge that even I have to specialize, you know, because there are specialists out there that, that deal with these things. So from a lay per person point of view, you know, don't be overwhelmed, but find something that really piques your interest, right? That really you found fascinating. I mean, you shared with me, like I found this particularly fascinating, you know, find that and, you know, find a, find me or find a rabbi or find a, you know, academic and say, where do I learn more about this particular thing? And then, and then sure, I can recommend you two or three books on that and two or three authors on that. But there are, there are introductory books like the one that I wrote that will get you started to think differently, right? To change how you think about things um, and get that tower to wobble. And that's really the first step because I don't recommend jumping into Michael Fishbane or John Van Cedars or or those sort of things right away because it, you know, it's jarring and it's academic and it's dense and it's, you know, you have to prepare yourself for that. You know, that's for, that's for a PhD student to jump into, right? It's not for the average layperson to just jump into right away. So some, a soft opening would be where I would recommend a starting point. One of the intentions of this podcast, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that because, well, you should have recommended this one. No, one, one of the, the intentions of this podcast is, <laughs> to kind of bridge that divide that I know people don't have time to do the work that a doctoral candidate is doing. They don't have time to write a thesis or specialize in something, but this stuff is out there. This information is out there and people are doing this work. And there, there's a, there's a chasm between popular level stuff yes. and what the academics are doing. And, and it, it's, there are grifters who are eager to jump on people's ignorance as it applies to, to Bible, because whether we're talking about Jews or Christians or anyone who believes the Bible is a significant document that informs their spirituality, their ignorance makes them vulnerable. It, it is a weakness. And it's a thing that, that I, you know, I'm hoping I will be able to contribute to and rectify because I know as a, as a precocious teenager who had a lot of questions I didn't always get the answers that I wanted. And it wasn't always right. helpful for people who worked at churches to give me the answers that I was looking for, because it may come back and affect their employment negatively if they said something that didn't go over right. well. 100%. Usually if the answer is easy, it's not the right one. That's why I'm, I'm sort of talking. It's a difficult starting point. And I will agree with you that one of the main things that I noticed right away as a rabbi in the field was the chasm, the absolute huge gap between the expert and the layperson. So much so that 
the high register learning that we are doing, it needs to be translated and not dumbed down, but just simplified a little bit, little piece by piece by people who don't do this for a living. We're just sort of interested in this. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I try to do. I'm glad you're trying to do it. And there are other people out there who, who are also trying to, to do this, but you have to acknowledge the chasm. And you also, like you said, have to acknowledge the grifters who are going to see you as lost and say, no, this is your answer. And, you know, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm, I'm going to say, this is a wealth of information. You got to tell me specifically what you're interested in, you know, what your question is. And maybe I can recommend one, one book, two books. And then from there, talk to me again, because there are people who disagree with that person. And then once you learn that, then you're ready to learn this. But you're not ready to learn that yet because you need to get the introductory part first, you know, just like going to school, right? You take the 101s first, and then you go up into the high level classes. We're we're teaching at a 500 level class level, right? and you're still in 101s. So we need to make sure that we provide the basics for the 101s. And a good 101 will tell you that before you go further, you need to pick your specialty, right? You need to pick what you're interested in, and then you can then you can go up into the higher level classes. Well, I know I know one book that that we'll recommend out of this conversation, and that's Let's Talk: A Rabbi Speaks to Christians. That's your book, oddly enough, Rabbi Michael E. Harvey. Is there where would you like people to check you out? So that book is I try to make it accessible as possible. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, big bookstores. It's in print, it's on Kindle, and it's an audiobook. So however is easiest for you to learn, what's affordable for you to learn, it is available. And, and so once you get that and you get started, tell me, email me, message me, find me on Twitter, whatever it is, and say, I had a question about your book and I'm interested in this and I will send you on that path. That is the 101. That's your summer reading before your 101 analysis, at least how I created it to be humbly, to be that introductory book. And so it's very easily obtainable, very easily findable. And that's what I would recommend. So on Twitter, you are at Rabbi Harvey, Rabbi Michael Harvey. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thanks again to Rabbi Michael Harvey for sitting down and talking to me. I appreciate it so much. I also want to give a free shout out to Riverside, the website I use to record this podcast. Riverside's claim to fame is that both parties or whoever is on the conversation are are recording on their local devices so that when you pull it to edit it you get the best possible product from from any of the contributors descript which is the editing software i use descript generates a transcription and it lets you take chunks of text and delete them or modify them as necessary and you can also use that to modify the video or audio it's a pretty cool product Podbean, which is where I host this podcast, they let me send it out to a ton of different platforms that I'd never even heard of before. And also the support that you get in sending out messages on multiple different social media platforms is incredibly helpful. And Wave, which is something that I didn't discover until after I had recorded the last episode, Wave allows me to take audio podcasts and generate a video that I can then post on YouTube out of that. Super grateful that there are products out there that make it so easy for someone who knows so little to do so much. 
thanks again. I look forward to hearing from you guys with any feedback that you might have on technical or quality parts of this podcast so that I can fix it and make it the best that it can be.